Today's scripture reading is from Romans, Romans 3, 21 through 26. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 797. So Romans 3. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. I'm trying to think of a funny remark to make about Jason's prayer because it struck me. You know, uh, live as though we're dying because we are. And, you know, there's a whole, like a whole string of, I don't know if it's been a tough week or, or maybe it was because he was sitting next to me and I recently had a health issue, you know. Uh, but anyway, it can serve as a segue into the uh, sermon because... What we're doing now for the next few weeks, those of you who've been here for a while would realize that we, you know, we preach through tech, consecutive texts of Scripture. You know, maybe like Philippians, well, we just came through Revelation, so we take the book of Revelation, we preach our way through it. Well, now we're headed into Easter. So for the next three or four weeks, as Easter approaches, and then on Easter Sunday itself, what we're going to do is take time away from the consecutive exposition of Scripture to look at certain topics. And particularly, what we're going to look at is the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. Just as a lead-in to Easter. So we think about the fact that, yeah, we are dying. But we also think even more of the fact that Jesus died for us. And we'll explore the significance of that over the next few weeks. In particular... When the New Testament wants to explain the significance of Jesus' death for us, it takes terms that we're unfamiliar with, but they were familiar with. You know, it's an odd thing because of the passage of time and because our use of these terms, you know, our terms come from Latin and, and these are not daily customs for us, but they took experiences from daily life and said, what does it mean that Jesus died for me? What did it accomplish? What difference does it make? Well, what was the problem it was solving? How did it solve the problem? What difference does it make in our daily lives? They took words from daily life. And because the terms are Latin-based, or because we don't use those terms so much today, we've lost track of what it all means. They, they took terms like justification. And very few people have any idea today what justification means. You know, they think, oh, well, it's kind of like one of those salvation words. Oh, they took words like salvation. Actually, the word salvation has a particular meaning. 
It's not a generic term that Jesus died for my sins and all that. It has a particular meaning. Justification and redemption and propitiation. Expiation. All of these terms were from daily use. But because we don't use them today, we, we, we lose the connection. For us, these are abstract theological terms. For them, they weren't. They were daily, concrete, everyday life terms. In order to explain the eternal, in order to explain heaven, in order to explain God, they took terms from their own daily experience. And if you understood this metaphor, then you'd understand some dimension of what Jesus done for us. Now, no metaphor can capture it all. No little piece of earth can ever capture the whole totality of heaven. But it takes, uh, it gives us a, a picture on a piece of it. So over the next few weeks, we'll look through these metaphors. And today, what we want to start with is one of the most common and one of the least understood. Uh, the term justification. Now, sometimes people think justification is just another metaphor, another synonym for salvation, but it's not. It has a particular meaning. And, and it, in fact, it comes from courtroom. It's a courtroom term. And after this, after this series, you at least should be able to understand about each of these metaphors. What is the problem identified? How did Jesus solve that problem? And what difference does it make in our daily lives? So courtroom language, justification. You know, we still use the word justice, right? We still use the word uh, just. Maybe that'll help you connect it with the courtroom. Some people talk as if justification, you know, a short form of justification is just as if I'd never sinned. Oh, that's way inadequate. That's not what justification is about. Justification is language that's pulled out of the courtroom. The concept of acquittal. It's the verdict that a judge renders when someone's on trial and is found innocent. You could call it innocent or acquittal. Think about this week. You know, if you've been following the news at all, you would have seen at least three spectacular, three important court cases. You know, this week, there was the case of the Wayland youth, now 20 years old who beat his girlfriend to death after she broke up with him when they were both 18 a couple years ago. And there was a court case uh, this week where he was found guilty. But he didn't plead guilty. He pled innocent, not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was found guilty and, and sentenced to life. And there'll be an automatic appeal you know, how this illustrates. In American courts, it's really quite phenomenal. No matter how much evidence there is against somebody, everybody begins by entering a plea of not guilty. We're never guilty. And then when you get convicted, there's typically an appeal, either to the conviction or the length of the sentence. So we had this Wayland youth who was convicted this week. And then this week also we had news about the, an appeal uh, filed on behalf of Catherine Gregg for harboring Whitey Bulger for, I don't know, 16 years while he was on the run. And she pled guilty. An initial plea was not guilty. She ended up in plea bargain. She pled guilty. And then she got a sentence of eight years. And now they're appealing it. The lawyer is saying, well, two years would be more reasonable. She shouldn't have eight years. And so they're now negotiating. And then this week or last, there was also the case of Whitey Bulger, who was accused of killing 19 people. And in his case, you know how he pled, right? 
He, he claimed to have immunity. He claimed that the FBI gave him immunity. In, you know, he was a um, uh, informant for the FBI, and he claims that the FBI gave him immunity in exchange for his information so that he could kill people while he's working as an informant for the FBI, and he shouldn't be held guilty. Now, all three of these cases illustrate at least two things. Number one is, we're always innocent until proven guilty. We, the first plea is always not guilty. And the second one is, we always have recourse to appeal. Either I wasn't, I, I was wrongly found guilty, or my lawyers didn't do a good job of representing me, or the sentence is too long. We always have this concept of not guilty, plead not guilty, and then appeal the sentence. No one's ever guilty. No one ever deserves the sentence they get. This is the context in which justification language arose in the New Testament. This is what it's talking about. If you look at the Old Testament and the leading into the New Testament, when God has a grievance against his people, when God's people are not obeying him, when they're not serving him, when they're not worshiping him, God enters a court case against them. You know, they want to explain how offensive is this to God? And what the Old Testament does, and then the New, is say, this is as offensive as criminal behavior. To God, given his majesty, given his glory, given his kindness and his mercy and his grace to us, then for us to mistreat God is criminal behavior. And so the Bible takes the daily experience of a court case and says, this is what we're like. Here's the problem. Ignoring God or sinning against God makes us criminals. And God puts us on trial. This is the problem. And then the solution. Somehow, our guilt was transferred to Jesus. He took our sentence. He bore our conviction. He carried our punishment. And then the consequence. There's certain consequences that follow for our daily life. So this is what we want to look at this morning. What's the problem? What's the solution? And then what are the practical consequences for how we live? Whenever you hear the term justification, this is where you should put yourself. Justification means we're at the defendant's table in a trial with God as the judge, accusing us of sin against him. We're on trial. So turn with me. What we want to look at is the problem, the solution, the difference it makes. Turn with me, first of all, to Romans chapter 1. Just a couple of pages before the scripture reading on 797. Romans chapter 1, 796. Here's the problem. Scripture outlines this. God has two forms of law. Just like our secular, like our courts have two forms of law. God has two forms of law. There's common law. There's law that's accessible to everybody. Take a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The version I'm reading from is a little bit different from yours because, uh, well, anyway. But uh, here it goes. Romans 1, 18 to 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Because they suppress the truth by their wickedness. What, they know, what may be known about God is plain to them. 
because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This is the first way we know about God, what you could call common law. This is how, we know about God from creation. Now, we don't know a lot about God from creation. But Scripture affirms that there's an intuitive sense. We can be educated out of this, but there's an intuitive sense when we look at the majesty and the beauty of creation. When we look at the sheer immensity of creation, at least we can infer two things. There's something outside creation that made this. There's something powerful, eternal, outside creation that made this. From what we look around as we see what's been made. Just like we see pews here. We can infer from that that given the order, the complexity, somebody made that pew. Somebody that had more life than a pew had to form it. Somebody that pre-existed the pew had to form it. And, And so intuitively, Scripture is saying, from common sense, from common law, we can look at creation and we can say, something made this. Something that pre-existed before creation did. Something powerful. We don't know a lot, but we can know that. And yet, it goes on to say in verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And this is the first offense against God, is that there's testimony about God, not comprehensive, not detailed, but but there's some understanding from God that we can pick up from the fact that creation exists. And yet, and yet we don't worship. We don't give thanks. We don't worship God for the majesty and beauty of creation. We don't give thanks to God for the things we gain from creation and the food we receive, the water, the rain. Now there's a second testimony to God. You look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 23. Certain people have a special statute revelation. You know, just like we have common law and, and actually written statutes, and so you have, everyone has access to common law of creation, and now some people have access to scripture. And he's describing the Jews here. And here's the second way people know about God. Verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, the Old Testament, the Bible, you boast in God. You know his will and you approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. You're convinced that you can be a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish. He's telling the Jew, look, you've got scripture. You're not, you don't have just creation. You have scripture. And you think because you have scripture, you can teach people who don't have the Bible, like Gentiles. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? His point is this. Even the Jews who know more about God because they have the Bible, even they don't obey. His point is about us. We have the Bible. And even though we know from Scripture, we know clearly what God wants, we can look at creation and we don't know much about what God wants. Maybe all we should do is is stand in awe of the beauty of the mountains and the depths of the sea and worship a God who can make these things. Maybe all we can do from creation is we enjoy the rain 
and it nourishes us. We enjoy the crops we grow, and they nourish us, and we can give thanks, but we don't know a lot about what God wants and what he calls us to. But scripture does. And so he, the argument is, to the extent that we ignore the God revealed in creation, to the extent that we ignore the God revealed in scripture, then we're criminals. And we're on trial for ignoring God, for disrespecting God, for not giving him thanks. And this is the fundamental charge against us. You know, often we get preoccupied with the specific sins that we commit. And they, they're an offense to God. But, but often, that's not the first offense. That's not the primary offense. What Scripture is saying is this, is our primary offense of God, against God is not the things we do. It's our basic stance toward God. Our basic heart resistance toward God. Our reluctance to acknowledge him, our reluctance to worship him, our reluctance to submit to him. All these other sins are secondary. They flow from that primary. And here's the primary basis for our guilt. We know what's right. We know who's right. But we don't acknowledge him. Then we know what's right, and we don't do it. That's the problem. And in scriptural terms, then, we're on trial. But here's the thing. Not like an American court. You can't plead not guilty. Because God knows. And we know. We're guilty. We can't plead that the sentence is too harsh. Because God is great and he's majestic. And a small sin against God is a big sin in its magnitude. And it's not like we have a court of appeal. If you want to appeal the sentence you get in federal court, you can go to district court or eventually Supreme Court. But who do we appeal to in the court when we're sentenced by God? So this is the premise, the problem with justification. The idea is that we're in court. We're on trial. And we are guilty. And we know the penalty. That's the problem. Now, the solution, Paul explains in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. And again, again, the solution has two parts to it. Take a look at page 797, Romans chapter 3, verses 21. Here's the first part of the solution. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. Here's the first part of the solution. First of all, a little bit about the language. You know, we got a lot of different terms. We got righteousness, righteousness, justified. In Greek, this is all the same word. There's not two different words, righteousness and justified. It's all the same word, and it all means this. It all comes back to this. That we have been acquitted. This is an extraordinary court. We know we're guilty. The judge knows we're guilty. We have no defense. We can't plead insanity. All we can plead is rebellion. The, the judge is holy and just, and he knows. He's omniscient. And yet he declares us innocent. 
This term righteousness, no, no, innocence, acquittal. But apart from the law, acquittal from God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This acquittal is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We are acquitted freely by his grace. Righteousness, a justification, this is the verdict that a judge issues after reviewing the evidence and determining that it has no basis in reality. God reviews our case and he determines that we are innocent. He acquits us. He validates us. Now, if you follow the court case involving the Wayland youth, or if you follow the court case involving Whitey Bulger even more, the thought that Whitey Bulger could have immunity for killing 19 people, or while he killed 19 people, even the thought, the claim that he had immunity, drove some of the survivors into a frenzy in the press. How can he even think that the government or the courts would allow him to kill people and not punish him for it, not find him guilty? Now, it's hard for us to capture what Scripture says about us. Because I, I, I understand, in our minds, for us to ignore God, for us to disobey God seems like a small offense. I ignore a lot of people. We all ignore a lot of people. You know, nobody gets so offended. But what Scripture is affirming is this, is that God is so majestic, and as God has been so generous toward us, that our ignoring him and our disobeying him puts us, makes us guilty of a capital offense. And God can no longer let us free. God can no longer call us innocent. He can no longer, uh, uh, no more acquit us than what our courts can acquit Whitey Bulger. So acquitting us is good for us, but it's only one half the solution. If the problem is we are guilty and we're on trial and God just acquits us, that doesn't solve the fundamental problem. All that means is you have a corrupt court. And so the flip side of it comes in verses, chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, we are acquitted freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his own integrity because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins we had committed unpunished. He did it so that he could demonstrate his integrity so that he might be just and the one who justifies God simply can't in his mercy forgive us because he's not only merciful, he's holy. And so God takes the punishment that's due us and lays it on himself in the person of his son. And this is the other part of the solution. This is the only way it can work. That the penalty due us is paid 
The, the conviction do us is past. The sentence do us is laid. Just not on us, but on Christ. He takes our conviction. He bears our punishment. He absorbs our sentence in our place. So justification means two things. It means we are acquitted even though we're guilty. And it means justice is done because Jesus is held guilty even though he's innocent. Our place was taken by Christ so that his place might be taken by us. The problem, we're guilty and we're on trial. The solution is Christ is punished so that we need not be. And finally, what, uh, what difference does this make for our daily lives? Let me point to two consequences that follow. Often, if you pick up a book on grace, often what you'll pick up is a distortion of Scripture. I was just reading a book on grace that makes the point this point. Grace never quits. There's no limits to grace. And the author is trying to reassure Christians that there's nothing so bad that we can do that will take us outside of God's grace. You know, it's not true. Grace doesn't cover all sin. Do we suppose that God makes that sort of agreement with us that Whitey Bulger claimed the FBI made with him? Do we suppose that because of grace, we can live any way we want and we still have immunity? You know, surely, uh, apart from Christ, yeah, if we ignore God, that's offensive and puts us on trial. And if we sin against God knowingly, that's offensive and puts us on trial. But once we plead Christ, well, you know, once we got this plea bargain worked out with Christ, then we can ignore God and it's, you know, not good, but we can goodbye. Or, or, or we can violate what God tells us to do. And it's not good, but, but it's okay. We can get by. We'll still survive. You know, when, when Whitey Bulger talks like this, uh, the survivors scream in the press. How The FBI couldn't make that. And if they did make that kind of agreement, the courts can't honor it. And yet, somehow we think that we can make this kind of a deal with God. That after he acquitted us and gave his son to die for us, even though it cost him that much, we can continue living in the same old way as we ever did before. That seems to be how... I mean, I've seen books that will argue that. Not quite so boldly, but that's the point. You know, grace knows no limits. Whoa! Yeah, there's limits. Take a look. I want to show you three different cases where we cannot sin with immunity. We cannot continue to live in sin with, with impunity. Well, take a look, first of all, at Romans 6, 8 to 10. What difference does it make that Jesus died for me? What difference does it make? Yeah, sure, I get to heaven now. But is that the only difference it makes? 
Is that now I can have a relationship with Jesus and I can get to heaven, I don't go to hell. Is that the only difference it makes? Take a look at chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. Why can't we plead Whitey Bulger's defense? Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. The death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. Here's the first reason why acquittal changes our lives. It's not just that Jesus died in our place. It's that we died with Jesus. He didn't just die for us. We died in him. When he died, we died. And when he came to life, we came to life. So we can't plead that he died for us and made no change in us. He died for us and he died in us. We died in him. Paul's, the first reason why we can't just continue to live the way we lived ever before was this. Is that we're no longer alive. We're dead. The sentence was passed and it was executed on Christ and he died. And so did we. And then he rose. And so have we. Now, now this doesn't explain the fullness of our experience, but this is an essential component of our experience. We've been acquitted, but more than that, at the same time, we've been put to death and we've been raised to new life. So it makes a difference. We can't sin with impunity because in some sense, you see, in some sense, we can't sin with impunity because in some sense, we can't sin. Somebody dies. You ask them to breathe. You ask them to eat. You ask them to jog. They can't. They're dead. And this is what Paul says in some sense is true of us. When Jesus hung on that cross, when he was taken down dead, when he was put in that tomb, we were put there with him. We died with him. We're not like that anymore. We are not just acquitted and then walking around killing people. We were acquitted, and at the same time, in another sense, we were executed. We died, we rose again. We can't sin with the immunity because we won't continue sinning. He gives another reason why we don't sin with immunity. In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you become slaves to the one you obey? And there's two choices. You can either be slaves to sin, or you can be slaves to obedience. Uh, but those are the only two choices. So you see, here's another dimension of it. In some sense, we've died and can't continue living in sin. But here's another dimension of what's happened to us in Christ. He said, if you continue to sin, so in one sense we can't, but in another sense we can't, but he says, if you offer yourselves to sin as its slave, what happens? Now, actually, you would know from either your life or from friends' lives what happens when we offer ourselves to sin. Take the example, you know, if it's a little bit indelicate, but take the example of pornography. You know, either from personal experience or from reading about the effects of pornography, you know what happens, right? 
At first, you, you only need low level, and it's exciting. And then the more you get into it, the, the deeper you get. And it's like drugs, right? Because they offer the first stuff free because they know they, they get you hooked and, and you're theirs. And you're going to blow thousands of dollars on this stuff. And the further you get into it, the more extreme gross stuff you need to get the excitement from it. You start with something small and you become a slave. And any form of sin is like that. And so the text tells us on one hand we won't sin with immunity and impunity because we're dead. On the other hand it says don't do it because it's addictive behavior. Now if you find yourself in that predicament now, as I've mentioned before, I will mention again, your situation is not lost. It is desperate. But it's not doesn't have to be terminal. We do have a ministry here, real, with Ian and Winnie Carpenter and others who are leading this. They will help nurture you out of that. It's a steady, steep climb, but you can be rescued from that. But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is, if we've been acquitted and we're no longer responsible for the bad things we've done, why don't we keep doing good, bad things? Two reasons. One is we're dead, and we can't. The other reason is, if we do, we'll become addicts serving this stuff. And then he gives a third reason why we don't continue sinning as if we have immunity. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Now, if you want to review all of this, it's covered in, in the devotional that's attached to your bulletin. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And here's a third sense. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Do you see what he's saying here? There's, there's some background here that he doesn't give here, but he gives in many other of his epistles. We actually go on trial twice in our lives. A lot of people only realize the first that we've been talking about. We actually face trial twice in our lives before God. We face trial in this life. We face trial at the end of our lives. And in this life, we're on trial before God, and this is what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 3. And we throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. By faith, we, we put our, faith is an empty hand. We go before God and say, look, God, I am guilty. I can't plead any defense. Save me. That's all we do. Faith is throwing ourselves on the mercy of Christ. And he comes, and through faith, by his grace, we're saved. We're acquitted. At the end of time, there's another trial. It's really the second half of a trial. You could consider the first as the grand jury. What we face in this life is the grand jury trial. And, and now we have the, the actual court case. And we come before God, and he looks at our lives. And he says, by the signs of how this person has lived, were they one of my children or were they not? And the verdict that comes at the end of life is consistent with the verdict that came during life. Uh, the salvation through faith is then confirmed by 
an evaluation of our lives that assesses whether or not we truly were saved. And so Paul says this, if you think you can go on sinning and ignoring God and living however you want, he says, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will come for trial at the end of your life and you will be found guilty and you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the sins of the body, you will live. You will be acquitted and you will live. So the trial in this life is only the first part of a two-part trial. So there's what difference it makes that we've been acquitted. One difference it makes is this. We're different people. We become different people. We die, we rise. We become different people. We don't want to turn back to the old slavery. We serve God now. We're enslaved to him. We become different people. With our faith, we live. We're different. It's not just that Jesus died for us so we don't have to die. Jesus died for us. He changes us. And we live differently. Now Paul supplements all of this with a second difference. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. What then shall we say in response to these things? He's told them some pretty serious things. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God gave Jesus to us, what won't he give? If he gave us his son, everything else is little. If he's willing to give us Jesus, he'll give us everything. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his son, so God is for us. He didn't spare his son. He's going to give us everything. And then if God is for us, who can be against us? If God acquits us, who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God has acquitted us. Who's the one who can condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. If we know that our sin is an offense to God, then there is a real risk here that we will beat ourselves, that our guilt will overwhelm us and drive us, drive a wedge between us and God. And so Paul ends his whole discussion of these things with this promise, that not only do we have a changed life before God, but we also have a clear conscience before God. Even when our conscience convicts us, the gospel frees us. Who will bring any charge? Who will bring any accusation against those whom God has acquitted? Who can condemn those whom God has declared innocent? Christ Jesus has died. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. First John puts it like this. Recognizing that often when we make a misstep, when we do commit a sin either through carelessness or through stupidity or through stubbornness. Then our conscience convicts us and Satan accuses us 
and we beat ourselves down with these things. And here's the promise of God from 1 John. This is how we set our hearts at rest when they provoke us and condemn us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. If our hearts condemn us, it is Jesus who acquits us. If our hearts condemn us, it is God who declares us innocent. And it's his court, it's his verdict that matters. And so we hold these two realities, these two truths in tension. And justification means I'm in a courtroom, I'm on trial, and I've been acquitted. Jesus had to die, he had to take my sentence so that I could be acquitted, but I have been acquitted. And now I've been transformed. I will live a new way. A new way of freedom and obedience and holiness to Christ. And a new way of a clear conscience before him. And as I stumble from time to time, from day to day, this is my confidence that Jesus has died and he has died for me. That I was on trial and was declared innocent. I will be on trial again, but the same verdict will prevail, provided I live for God and serve him. Let us pray together. Father, may this be our experience. Not only that in Christ we are acquitted, but that in Christ we die to sin. In Christ, we live to you. And in Christ, we have an assurance that even if our conscience convicts us, you acquit us. May this be our experience. In Jesus' name, amen.